This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 187. Hey there, folks. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. Later, I'll tell you about my progress on the writer's journey. But for now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 45 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Kate, Morgan, John, and Lizzie entered what they think is the underground base for a sinister death cult an abandoned water treatment plant near the underground river on the west side of town. They were looking for Will Karenson, a college student and Callie Linder's boyfriend, who was kidnapped while conducting research into the cult. They are assisted by Callie, who's keeping watch on the entrance from a sniper's nest on the skyway overhead, and by homicide detective Michael Pirelli, who is staying close to the plant's entrance and acting as a communications relay between the team and Callie. Kate and her team made their way down to the first sublevel, where the old maps of the facility had shown a storage area for hazardous chemicals. If the cult was using any part of the plant as a makeshift prison, that was the most likely spot. The path led them out of the plant proper and into a much older set of stone tunnels, which lay very close to the river. From there, they followed Morgan's nose to find Will. The young man was still alive when they broke into his cell, but he was clearly in bad shape. His skin was covered in dozens of electrical burns, and he had apparently gotten a severe concussion. After examining him, Morgan delivered a dire prognosis. Will is likely bleeding into his brain. If he doesn't get to a hospital, and quickly, he's going to die. Kate is torn. She wants to save Will's life, but she also knows that calling for an ambulance will reveal their location to Captain Shaw, and that will let the cult know that Kate is on to them. The cultists will go to ground, just like they did 27 years ago, and it's likely that Kate will never find them again. Understanding the stakes of the mission, Morgan hesitantly offers another option. She can feed Will some of her blood. A vampire's blood is intensely magical, and it has powerful regenerative properties. Unfortunately, it's also terribly addictive. Under the circumstances, though, Morgan believes the risk is warranted. Kate angrily lashes out at Morgan for even suggesting such a thing, but an intervention by John forces her to reconsider. If she doesn't let Morgan give Will the blood, John is going to carry him out of here and get him to a hospital, with or without her. Chastened, Kate realizes that her anger was unwarranted, and that Morgan has earned her trust. She tells Morgan to give Will the blood. (laughs) 
The Lost and the Least, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 45 Morgan held up Will's head as she guided the trickle of vampire blood into his mouth. She had been on the receiving end of this ritual before, but this was her first time doing it to another person. She did not want to accidentally send the blood down his windpipe and choke him. After a few seconds, she heard him swallow. That was reassuring. Whatever his exact medical status at present, his reflexes were still functional. But it also meant she was committed to this course of action, and she was still not at all sure whether it was the right thing to do. But letting this young man die was definitely not the right thing to do. So she fed him another three mouthfuls of her blood, closed her wounds with a moment's concentration, and sat back to let the blood do its work. Vampire blood was only superficially like the blood of mortals. It did not need to carry oxygen, like mortal blood. While the vampire's body did absorb raw materials from food, the carbon, nitrogen, and other elements needed to maintain a physical body, transporting those components was not especially time-sensitive. The energy that vampires needed to survive traveled through the Amalan, the network of mana nodes that formed the mystical counterpart to the circulatory system. What vampire blood did contain were untold billions of microscopic magical organisms, which carried the vampirism contagion from one host to another. Such microscopic living tools were common now in the world of biotech therapies. Someone with more whimsy than sense had named the creatures nanoscopic pixie particles, or nanopixies, and the name had unfortunately stuck. The more pedestrian term nanotech virus was sometimes used, particularly by those in the medical community who could not say nanopixies with a straight face. Morgan didn't like that term either. The little monsters were more like bacteria than viruses, and their function had much more to do with magic than technology. In a person near the brink of death, the vampire nanopixies would first swarm across the blood-brain barrier and into the nervous system preserving the victim's memories and personality beyond the death of the body. The dying cells would then enter a state of suspended animation, fueled by the mana the nanopixies carried. Over the next three days or so, Mother Lilith's microscopic brood would transform the person into a vampire. That was what Braddock had done to Morgan, after first drinking most of her blood to ensure her mortal demise. It was the consumption of the victim's blood, followed by the giving of the vampire's own blood, that created the blood bond, which made the new vampire a slave to the will of the sire. If a vampire gave her blood to a terminally injured person without draining them first, the resulting child would be unbound, which the syndicate considered extremely dangerous. Morgan herself was an example of how unpredictable an unbound vampire could be, and the Lightbringers had had to destroy her sire in order to give her that freedom. When a vampire's blood was given to a healthy mortal, though, or at least one who was not at the brink of death, the nanopixies could not complete the vampire metamorphosis. Instead, they lingered for a time in the subject's body, repairing damage, 
amplifying the person's strength and reflexes, increasing aggression, and often creating a heady feeling of invincibility. Eventually, the mortal's immune system would gather them up and sweep them out of the body, and the subject would gradually return to normal. But as Kate had said, the blood was often addictive. It was hard to experience a brush with godhood and then go back to being a mundane human. The syndicate used this so-called blood gift to empower servants who could walk in the daylight world, carrying out the vampire's will where the vamps themselves could not. Like everything else in the syndicate, it was a tool for domination and control. Morgan didn't have any interest in controlling others. She'd been controlled enough herself that she would never wish such a thing on another person. But she knew that her blood came from a strong vampire lineage, which presumably meant her own nanopixies were especially numerous or effective. She hoped they would be strong enough to save a young man's life. For a minute or so, there was no visible reaction. Morgan sat watching, waiting. John kept moving back and forth between Will and the bars of the cell, anxiously looking out at the hallway beyond. Elizabeth stayed at her post, quietly watching for signs of trouble. Kate got up and paced on the far side of the cell, her hands on her hips, her eyes watching her feet. Morgan could hear her teeth grinding. The response came first with a change in Will's heartbeat. Morgan took his wrist again and checked the pulse. It was slowing, the heartbeat growing calmer, steadier. His breathing did likewise. After another minute, his body stopped trembling, and color returned to his cheeks. Then he took a deep breath, like a man rousing from sleep, and opened his eyes. What? he whispered. His eyes focused on Morgan, then froze there, as she unwittingly caught him in her hypnotic gaze. Oh, he breathed. It came out sounding more like an expression of awe than understanding. His face brightened, like a man receiving a divine revelation. Looking into the face of a god. Morgan felt a twinge of guilt and self-loathing. She remembered what she'd thought about doing to Kate last night in the skimmer. She forced herself to look away, breaking the connection. Will, she said, keeping her voice low and gentle, do you remember where you are right now? In her peripheral vision, she saw Will's head moving around, ticking in his surroundings. I'm in the cell, he said, sounding drowsy. The Brotherhood must have put me back in here when they were done with me. The Brotherhood? Yeah, um, the Brotherhood of the Sepulchre. That's what they call themselves. How evocative, Morgan said dryly. Did they tell you what they want, then? No, they hardly said anything to me, except to ask me questions, trying to figure out how much I knew, who else knew about them. I got the name from the guy in the next cell, Jared. They talked to him a lot more, I guess. Now Kate came to stand over them. Jared, she said, her voice hard and urgent. Jared Tamlin? I... I don't know, maybe... I don't think he told me his last name. Will frowned. Did we win? Did you beat the Brotherhood? So far we haven't found the Brotherhood. 
They pulled out and left you here. Any idea why? Will shook his head weakly. No, they... they took Jared? We didn't see anyone else in the cells down here. Kate raised her voice slightly. Lizzie, check to make sure. The beam of Lizzie's torch swept over the adjacent cells. They're empty, Kate. Do you have any idea where they might have taken him? Kate asked. Um, Will's frown deepened. He said they were going to do a ritual to test him. They want to see if he's their chosen one, their savior. Kate looked like she'd bitten into something sour. Damn it. I was really hoping that was just a dream. She turned her attention back to Will. So what is this test? Some kind of torture? Actually, Jared said they'd already tortured him. They told him he passed the first two tests, and if he passed two more, that would mean he was their savior, and he'd be free to go. And he believed them? Will's shoulders twitched in a shrug. I'm not sure. I don't think he thought the odds were very good, but it was the only shot he had, so he was going to go for it, you know? I think we all understand taking desperate actions in the face of long odds, Morgan said, pointedly not looking at Kate. I hate to interrupt, John said, but can we finish this debriefing somewhere else? I'm getting a bad feeling from these manipulses. As if on cue, another wash of death mana ran over them. Morgan had gotten used to them by now, and had barely noticed them growing stronger. But then, death mana was to her what life mana was to John, Kate, and the others. Now that she thought about it, she could imagine that things down here must be getting rather uncomfortable for them. How do you feel? Morgan asked Will. Are you strong enough to stand? I don't know. Will's expression turned puzzled. I feel... strange. That's to be expected. Why don't I try to help you up? Okay. Morgan stood up, then helped Will to do likewise. He swayed a little when he reached his feet, but then he steadied himself and stood up straight. I think I'm all right, Will said. I feel a little tingly right here. He touched the back of his head. Morgan could imagine the nanopixies bunching up in and around his brain, repairing whatever damage had brought on his brush with death. That will pass, Morgan said. Yeah, let's try walking. Another pulse of death mana hit. This one was so strong that John, Kate, and Lizzie all bent double, letting out grunts and gasps of pain. For Will, though, that surge must have given his vampire nanopixies a boost of energy, because he stood even straighter, taking in a deep breath. Wow, he said. I feel great all of a sudden. What happened? He looked around at the others, his expression growing concerned. What's wrong with them? I'll explain later, Morgan said, taking Will's arm and guiding him to the hole in the cell. Right now we need to get you out of here. John recovered from the pulse faster than Kate. He went to her side and put her arm over his shoulder, and together they lurched toward the exit, a couple of meters behind Will and Morgan. As soon as Will put a hand through the opening in the cell, though, a flash of yellow light ran through the bars of the cell. Morgan heard a sizzling snap, like a discharge of static electricity, 
and Will fell back onto his rump. His hand trailed fine tendrils of smoke, and he clutched it to his chest with a cry of pain. Oh, dear, Morgan whispered. The cascade of light rippled around the walls and across the floor of the cell, ending in a set of intricate markings on the far wall. The marks had been invisible before, but now they lit up with intense yellow light, as if a fire were burning behind the stones. The stench of sulfur filled the air. Elizabeth! Morgan shouted. Go for help! Go! Elizabeth's eyes flicked back and forth between Morgan, Will, Kate, and John, and the spell that Will had inadvertently triggered with his attempted escape. She took in the whole scene in two seconds. Then her jaw set with determination, and she turned and sprinted back down the hall. Will watched her go with wide, fearful eyes. He looked up at Morgan, his lips struggling to form a question he couldn't articulate. Callie is upstairs, Morgan said. She'll help us get out of here. Stay behind me, Will. She took out her weapon, the big game pistol she had taken from Silas's armory, and took aim at the center of the arcane pattern. She could already see the space around it rippling, like a heat shimmer in the desert. John and Kate had regained their balance now, probably helped by the adrenaline rush the trap had triggered. Without needing to say a word, they took up flanking positions along the left and right walls of the cell, forming a crossfire centered on the incantation. What's happening? Will asked, fear driving his voice up an octave. It's a summoning trap, Morgan said grimly. You lock the subject in a bubble, then send something in to kill them. Oh, what kind of something? A ripple started in the middle of the shimmering wall. A large, scaly gray hand, tipped with long black claws, extended out of the rock. A second hand followed the first an instant later. Long, bony arms extruded from the wall, bending at their knobby elbows, and the hands splayed outward, digging their claws into the sides of the wall. Then a nightmarish face pushed its way into view. It seemed part crocodile, part mange-ridden jackal, and its eyes glowed red like a pair of burning coals. It fixed its gaze on Morgan, who stood squarely in the center of its field of vision. The creature snarled, saliva dripping from long, knife-like teeth. Something like that, Morgan said, and opened fire. And that's the end of chapter 45. Can our heroes escape from the Brotherhood's sinister trap? Will help be able to reach them in time? And how will Kate handle her first taste of combat since the battle in the catacombs? Find out next week. Now it's time to check in on my writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 2,929 words this week, over the course of four hours, for an average writing speed of 732 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 210 days without breaking my chain. This week I finished my new opening chapters for Homecoming. I'm now making my way back through the manuscript, incorporating the edits suggested by my beta reader, and deleting redundant information that was covered by the new intro. 
The manuscript is now about 95,000 words. Looking back at the month of April, I wrote a total of 17,243 words in 23 days, averaging 750 words per day. I fell one day short of my goal of writing on 24 days each month. Compared to all of the months I've been doing this since May 2015, this April fell exactly in the middle, ranking 24th out of 48 months. Compared to March, my word count decreased by 30%, and my writing time decreased by 20%. This also marks the end of my fourth full year of tracking my writing progress, and my fourth season of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I produced 37 episodes this season, which is three less than the 40 I had planned at the beginning. Over the last 12 months, I wrote 158,260 words in 202 days. That's roughly 10,500 more words, and two more days of writing, than in Season 3, which is especially impressive because I got very little writing done in the first five months of the season. I wrote the entire first draft of a novel, finished a 12,000-word story I had started in 2016, and made good progress on another longish story, which I'd started in 2015. Overall, I feel very good about what I've accomplished this year, and I'm excited for what I'll be doing in Season 5. And now, the feedback. Eric of Georgia writes, Chris, as always, I've been enjoying listening to The Lost and the Least, but something you wrote in Chapter 44 jumped out at me, and I just can't let it pass without comment. You wrote that Morgan damaged the door with a pair of roundhouse kicks, with her steel-reinforced boot heel striking the metal. I know martial arts styles vary, but every style I've ever been exposed to has a roundhouse kick striking its target with the flat upper side of the foot. Heel strikes are normally from side, back, and hook kicks. Well, you got me, Eric. I wrote this scene during a break at work, when I didn't have the internet available to distract me, or to do research while I was writing. I remember thinking that a roundhouse kick was one of the most powerful kicks in martial arts, and that Morgan would need the maximum force she could deliver in order to break down the door. Unfortunately, I forgot to go back later and double-check whether my facts matched up between the type of kick and the way she was striking. My beta readers were not martial arts experts either, so we missed this during the editing pass. After doing some more research, I think that what Morgan actually threw was a spinning back kick. This is also a very powerful kick, but it strikes with the heel, which is where she had the steel reinforcement in her boot. Thanks for pointing this out, and I'll make a note to fix it in the next edition of the book. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. 
Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.